Let's pray. Well, thank you for that song reminding us that there's joy coming in the morning. Father, we're reminded in many of our dark nights, our dark days, that you're a God, a God who is a God of light and, and light shines in the morning. We thank you for the promise of the ultimate morning that we would come again for your people, Lord. Help us to hold on during that, until that day, Lord. And we pray for the young ones today as they, they go to Friends of Jesus, Lord. They would learn more about what it means to know you, to follow you, to, to, to believe in you, and to love one another. And may we, as we begin to look at Colossians, do the same thing. Be grounded in you and, and, and trusting in you that we might be disciples of Jesus in this day. We'll give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to our 8.30 service this morning. This, this month, this new month, we're beginning a, a, a four-part series on the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. You probably heard the other day that a famous man died. Cassius Marcellius Clay. Some, he, one of his nicknames was he was the Louisville Lip because he talked so much. He was an arrogant 22-year-old Olympic champion, he was heavyweight champion, and uh, he was a Vietnam War activist, a, a war protester. He didn't want to go and fight in the war. He said he had some interesting things to say about that. Uh, he, was, he became a legendary figure, an example for many people, not just here in America, but around the world. He was a disciple of Malcolm X, discipled by him, and then he, came, he converted to, to Islam under the, the, uh, uh, the work of Malcolm X. And then when Malcolm had his pilgrimage to Mecca and got enlightened about Muslim, the Muslim faith, uh, Cassius Clay, Muhammad Ali, and Malcolm X separated. They, 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 they did not see eye to eye, as many people didn't see eye to eye with Malcolm after that Mecca enlightenment journey. But for 32 years, the last 32 years of this great, strong man's life, he was weakened by Parkinson's disease. But it didn't diminish his reputation as one of the greatest boxers of all time, the greatest athletes of all time. But like all of us, he was mortal. He is mortal. This past week, he went from here to eternity. He who claimed to be the greatest, who was for 32 years humbled, realized that greatness here on earth means nothing, really. And that day, it's not about Muhammad or Buddha or the Dalai Lama or the Pope or... In the words of Israel Houghton and Cindy Cruz Ratliff, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. You are the Holy One. You are the living Word. You are the Son of God. You are the solid rock, the center of my focus. You are miraculous, supernatural, you are powerful, so wonderful, the center of my focus. You are the lover of my soul, and I adore you only. It's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. This month, our, our sermon series in Colossians, we're looking at him, talking about rooted and built up in him, built up and rooted in Jesus Christ, that, that, that verse 
who we look at next week in Colossians chapter 2, rooted and built up in him. But today our passage is Colossians 1, the end of Colossians 1, verses 21 to 29, the last verse of this chapter. Let's, let's listen to this together. Colossians 1, 21 to 29. It's on the overhead here to your right, my left, ESV. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body, his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. God's word. Jesus Christ is the key. To, to both our, our being saved by faith and our, our, our becoming mature in this salvation by faith. Jesus Christ is the key. It's about him. We're talking about conversion or maturity. It's about him. It's in Christ. It's in him. It's not in the church. It's not in the right religious club. It's not being in the right family. It's not doing the right religious ritual. It's not doing good things in society. What's it about? It's about being in him, in Christ. The first chapter, it says of Christ, it says about him, in verse 14, in whom we have redemption. In verse 16, in him all things were created. In verse 19, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in verse 22, reconciled in his body of flesh. It's about him. Paul's going to look at a couple things in this passage. Let's walk through it. He'll talk, first of all, about the, rec the reconciliation in Christ and then the ministry in Christ. He talks about his own ministry and then maturity in Christ, what, that, what that's about. Let's look at those three things. First, the reconciliation in Christ, verses 21 to 23. Verse 21 begins to talk about, you see the word, we were alienated. We, we, we were not reconciled. There's a barrier. There's a problem. There's hostility. Alienated and hostile in our mind, doing evil deeds. That's our past. Those who are in Christ, that's our past. We were not friends of God. We were enemies of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3 points it out even more, more, more specifically. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work still in the sons of disobedience, among whom all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's, 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 that's who we are. That, that's, that's our nature. We have a problem. We're, we're spiritually dead. We're not alive to God. But he has now reconciled us. We are now reconciled to him. The change has occurred in his body of flesh by his death. His death 
was effective for us. It's in him. It's in Christ. And those who are linked by faith to him receive the benefits of that. The person of Christ and the work of Christ. That's what Paul's addressing here. Let's talk about the vertical aspect of, of reconciliation. And we celebrate that each week. That's why we gather every week to say that Christ has reconciled us to, 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 to our Father. We come to celebrate the reconciling work of Jesus Christ. That's what, we, that's what we come to do each week. That's what the church for years has done, for centuries has done. Sabbath means rest. We come on the Sabbath day, the day of rest. Why do we rest? Because the work has been done for us. It's a day of Sabbath, a day of worship. We worship because we don't have to work to, for our salvation. It's been done for us by him. And then, and then it moves on. The, the, there's, there's a result cl uh, clause here. In, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. A couple things there. First, it's, it's talking about our position. That's who we are. That's how Christ sees us. That's how God the Father sees us. We're holy in Christ. That's our position. But there's also a, a, a sort of purpose statement as well here. We're seeking to grow that that, that that might become who we are. That's who we are, and that's who we want to become. And what are those things? Holiness, blamelessness, above reproach. The ESV Bible uh, uh, note says, the result of reconciliation is that Christ is now working in all the believers to present you holy and blameless before God. This is the same language used in the Old Testament to describe the unblemished animals that the Levitical priest would bring for the sacrifice to God. You see the picture there? When Christ brings his followers to the Father for inspection, they'll be found to be above reproach. Now, now, we're brought to the Father and we're above reproach not because of who we are, but because we are what? In Him. We are in Christ. And He is the spotless one. He's the, the one who's without blemish, the one who is holy. So the, but our purpose is that we would pursue that, that it would become a reality in more and more in our lives. That we would pursue holiness, pursue blamelessness. That we continue in the faith, being stable and steadfast as opposed to being unstable or shifting from the hope of the gospel. This sort of echoes Ephesians chapter 4. It talks about not tossed to and fro by every wind of teaching, but growing up into maturity. It echoes that phrase in Ephesians 4. It speaks of our perseverance, doesn't it? Uh, we are kept by this Holy Spirit as we continue in the faith. Now, there's an apparent contradiction at first glance in that, in that, in that phrase, but it really isn't a contradiction. It, 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 it's not a condition. It, it, the, the, the idea is simply that a true saving faith is one that continues. A true saving faith is a faith that continues. But a false faith is a faith that doesn't continue and doesn't endure through the tests of time, the trials of life. Romans 5 says, A faith that reconciles, a, a true saving faith, turning God's enemies into his friends, is a faith that rejoices even in sufferings, a hopes in the glory of God produces endurance, a hope that does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's the kind of faith that Paul's talking about here. And the question for each of us is, do we have that kind of faith? Do we have that kind of reconciling faith, the faith that, that connects us to the God who has reconciled us to himself through his Son? 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone's in Christ... He is a new creation. He's a, God is doing a, a new work, a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Reconciliation with God is what Paul's talking about here. He wants to make sure the Colossians understand that, and I want you to understand that that is what it's about. That's why we're here. We've talked about that connection, and we once were alienated, and now we're reconciled. Now, the next thing that I think Paul begins to develop here is, is he begins to talk about his own self and his own ministry, the min- his ministry in Christ. Let's talk about ministry in Christ. Verses 24 to 27. It's ministry. He, he talks about rejoicing and suffering. It's a ministry that involves some pain. It involves some, 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 some suffering. This is one of the prison epistles, one of the prison letters. He's writing from prison. Now, he does not have a, a, a face-to-face relationship with that congregation at, at, at Colossae. He has not been there. Uh, the, the church origins, probably um, when he was at Ephesus for those three years, it said there in Acts chapter 19 that all of Asia Minor heard the gospel. And, and Colossians, Coloss, the city of Colossae was over 100 miles from Ephesus. But, but Epaphras, we, we, in the first chapter we heard about him in the scripture reading, was the one who took the gospel from Paul in Ephesus. He took it back to Colossae, and, and the church was sprung up from there. He's the leader of the church, the planner of that church. And, and, and so Paul here has to make sure that he have, he has, he's sort of developing some common ground and giving him a little bit of background. He, he's in prison. He doesn't know them well. He's talked a little bit about his ministry uh, among them in, uh, in the empire. Verse 20, 24, the second half, says, In my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. That's a very strange phrase. Very strange phrase. The fruit of the suffering of God's people is that many will see their endurance and come to believe the gospel. I believe that's what he's saying. That, that, that out, of, out of the suffering, it fills up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. Not, not, that, the, not that the work of Christ is not efficient and adequate and sufficient for, to do all that it does, but, it, but, but as the church suffers, the world sees that suffering and the world comes to understand that message. So it's been said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and that's very true. That as, as believers suffer for this gospel, the church expands. Try as Satan would try, he can't defeat the church of God. The, the verses continue. He says, rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Doesn't know them, but he's rejoice, rejoice in my suffering for your sake. I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. It's given to me to make the word of God fully known. And that's his passion, to make the word of God fully known. That should be our passion, that people would know Christ. Paul seems to be talking about the ministry in a technical sense of he's a minister, of, 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 a, a missionary, a minister there. However, what he's saying here is true for all of us, isn't it? Whether you're a minister or you're not a minister, you're a minister. <laughs> you're, you're, you've been given the responsibility to, to be a person called by God to share that faith with other people. And part of that sharing of faith is we're called to suffer. And that's what Paul's getting at. That as we serve, as we minister, there's a, there's a, there's, it's also a calling to suffer. N.T. Wright, theologian, says that Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness or the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities for a family or a church, the constant doubts and uncertainties which accompany the obedience of faith and a thousand natural shocks within the call to follow Christ. It's a calling to, ministry is a call to, to experience some suffering and pain. That's part of the call. 
2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul warned Timothy, all who desire to live godly will be persecuted, will suffer persecution. 1 Peter 4, I love this 1 Peter 4 verse, verse 15 and 16. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know what he's saying there? If you're going to suffer, be sure it's for the sake of Christ and not because you're being stupid. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't, don't think that all your suffering is because you're, you're a Christian. Some of it's because you're just being stupid. Don't do that. But he said part of the calling of being a Christian is that it might involve suffering. It probably will involve suffering of some type. It's one of the great paradoxes of the, of the Christian life, isn't it? We believe that there's great blessing when we become linked to Christ. In Christ, there's great blessing and joy there's also inevitable suffering and pain, isn't there? It's part of the way of righteousness. Yesterday we had a great time at the, um, the um, Christian Education Workshop and looking at how to study the scripture, how to ask right questions. One of the discussions was um, about um, how people can become motivated to, to know the word of God. And one, I don't remember who it was, someone said that, that one of the things that motivates people to really know God and get into his word is when they're in suffering, when they're in pain. Well, somehow we're, we're in pain and we're going through hard times our ears are more alert to God. It's true. It really is true. Paul talked about the fellowship of his sufferings in Philippians chapter 3. Knowing him in the fellowship of his sufferings. Ministry involves pain. But, but, but despite the pain, there's joy in the ministry. He says, I rejoice in the suffering. Why? Because ministry involves proclamation and seeing God work. Proclamation. Now, in, in these verses, Paul talks about uh, the mystery. Let's talk about that word, the mystery. Let's understand what he's talking about here. Paul is in prison, and he's suffering for the gospel, especially for the aspect of the gospel that's called the mystery. He calls it here and in other passages, the proclamation to the Gentile people. The mystery is Jews and Gentiles. It is these people groups united in Christ, coming together in Christ, believing the same gospel, experiencing the same spirit baptism and empowerment, and sharing the same hope as equal partners in the church of God. Specifically, Paul is addressing the reality that the indwelling Christ, who is the hope of glory for the Jewish saints that come to faith in, in the Messiah, is the same indwelling Christ who gives the same hope to Gentile peoples. To you, Gentile Colossians is the hope. Gentiles who were, in Ephesians 2, were once far off, but now have been brought near in Christ. The ESV Bible notes says, at the heart of the mystery that God is now revealing through Paul is the amazing hallmark of the new covenant, Christ in you, the hope of glory. God himself and the person of Christ will be directly and personally present in the lives of his people, and his presence assures them of a future life with him when he returns. Moreover, Christ does not reside only in believing Jews, but also in believing Gentiles, so that there is one unified people of God. That's what Paul's talking about. And, and, and so he boldly proclaims the mystery. In fact, when Paul was converted, this idea of being, uh, uh, presenting the mystery to the Gentiles was right there. In Acts chapter 9, uh, Paul, God says to, to Ananias, I believe, um, <clears throat> uh, 
uh, in Acts 9, 15 and 16, the Lord said to him, Go, for he, speaking of Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel, which is his own people. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Suffering for the mystery. That's what Paul's talking about. Now note this. The essential reason that the Apostle Paul is suffering is for the universal aspects of the message. This new gospel message. That it's not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Gentiles. It's the Jews and Gentiles coming together in one church, being one body, as God always intended to be. He was not suffering for believing that Jesus is a way to God, but that he was the way to God. That's what he was suffering for. He was the only way. He's not saying that Jesus is a son of God. He's saying that Jesus is the son of God. See, the prepositions are very important. Paul is suffering because he believes the gospel is for all people. It's not a local thing. It's not a cultural thing. It's a universal thing. In our day, there's much discussion about the gospel in a postmodern world, a pluralistic world, and, 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 and that says that there's really no absolute truth, and we can't say that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, this, the clear teaching of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation says no to that. Paul, Paul has stern warnings. In Galatians chapter 1, you recall, he warns about any who would distort the gospel of God's free grace, justifying grace that comes through Jesus. So the question is, does, does what I believe about Jesus make me a possible target for persecution in our world? A world that hates that message? Does it? Does what I believe about Jesus, is, or, or, is, or have, I, have I made my beliefs palatable to the unbelieving world? That's the question that we have to face in our generation. Do I just go along and get along and soften the claims of Jesus Christ in the Scriptures? Paul's in prison preaching that mystery, preaching a universal message. Paul believed in boldly applying this, this ministry of the ministry of mystery, this reconciliation. This, the, the, the mystery has, has horizontal implications when it comes to reconciliation. That we're reconciled to each other in one body. And Paul, Paul planted churches that applied that message in that way. Many of you know that we've, Craig and I are part of a project of writing a book. That book is out now. It's been out for a couple weeks. And I've begun to read the book. And um, it's called Heal Us, Emmanuel, the, the picture there. And let me tell you a story that I, of one of the chapters that I read, which just blew me away. It's by, by an elder named Sam Graham. He's um, an el ruling elder, a PCA, a PCA ruling elder of Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. He, he's, he's about 50 years old. He grew up in Memphis. He talks about um, being six years old, and his job in, in his family was to take out the trash when he was six years old. And at that point was when Martin Luther King was in town, uh, for the second time, his visit to town. And if you might recall, there was a, a, a strike among the sanitation workers that King was part of. And so he said, all, I knew, all he knew was his job was to take out the trash and it would disappear. And then he took out the trash for a couple times and it didn't disappear. He didn't know what was going on. And then King died. It's a great, great, great story there. But he talks about um, in the book, um, something happened a couple years ago. Let me read from, from what he said there. 
um, our church um, was invited by Second Presbyterian Church to participate in a commemoration service for the 50th anniversary of the 1964 kneel-ins when black and white students peacefully kneeled at the entrance of the church in protest of its policy to not allow black people to worship there. Okay? When I walked into the sanctuary that morning, I arrived at the same time as an elegant, older African-American lady. We walked in together, and she went to be with her friends and family. After the service, I discovered the lady with whom I had walked into the sanctuary was the sister of Joe Purdy, P-U-R-D-Y, the first black man who had been denied entry to the sanctuary in 1964. Carolyn Purdy McGee told of her brother's gentleness, his godliness, his character, his lifelong quest to honor God, his dedication to the Christian faith. At the end of the service, I had the opportunity to meet her. I told her I was the spiritual offspring of the men who had blocked her brother from the sanctuary 50 years before. They were good men in so many ways, but I could not explain or justify their actions toward her brother. I expressed remorse for what had happened. She was incredibly gracious toward me. We prayed together. I prayed a prayer of repentance. She prayed a prayer of forgiveness. We both wept. Weeks after the kneeling commemoration service, Carolyn Purdy McGee invited me to her home. We both knew there was unfinished business. She welcomed me into her home and introduced me to her family. They were all hospitable and kind. She asked me some, some honest, tough questions. What does it mean to be a Bible-believing Christian in a city where white people and black people still practice cultural segregation, especially in our churches? Doesn't Revelation 7 describe the church as the redeemed from every tribe and nation? How could Christian men act the way they did to her brother in 1964? She held her Bible in her hand and asked, is this the same book they had? Did they really believe what it says? Her questions were not accusatory. Her tone was not angry, but rather one of great pain with a genuine desire to understand. I sought to explain what I've been told. So Carolyn listened carefully. She simply pointed to a photo of her brother, held her Bible in her hand, and gently but firmly said, my brother Joe was there simply to honor God in the face of godless racism and evil, man-made segregation. He was a mild-mannered Christian young man seeking to peacefully enter a Christian church in his hometown. Those conversations continue. The picture that you see there was taken a couple weeks ago after the book came out as they continue to, 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 to develop their friendship. There's a, a, a PCA ruling elder who's repentant and, and, and the sister of, of the leader of something that happened 50 years ago. Things are happening. We need to continue to pray that the church of God would appreciate the mystery and would live it out. See, the, the mystery isn't just something that's to be lived out in a big picture. It's to be lived out in day-to-day -day in congregations. That's what God wants. Thankfully, thankfully we're, we're, we're a little bit further along than many congregations. That's, I'm thankful for that. But let's keep working at that. In a world that desires reconciliation and harmony, there's, there's no shortcut. The church of Jesus can't merely call people to justice and reconciliation. We must take the lead. And he begins by calling all people to be reconciled to God. That's where it begins. But it doesn't stop there. Now listen. To apply the mystery by promoting harmony and across the divides of this world and 
believing that all people need to live in harmony and peace and, 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 and the message of reconciliation and justice and shalom for all people, to, 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 to apply that is very, very popular message in our world today. Very popular. You don't get much pushback. No suffering for that. We live in the 21st century. The enlightened 21st century. Not the 18th century or the 17th century. But to declare the mystery. To proclaim it. And why we believe this. That's because Jesus is the Lord of the Jew and the Gentile. And to declare that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Either willingly or by force. To dare say that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords will get you in heaps of trouble. Do we understand that? Deep down we know that, don't we? In the first century, and now in the 21st century, people don't want to hear that message apart from the conviction of the Spirit of God. And the good news is there is the conviction of the Spirit of God, and God is building his church in incredible, dramatic ways. Heard a story this week of something that happened uh, overseas, a story of a man named Osama. Osama was a Muslim fundamentalist working uh, at a certain place that's often called the Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda of Syria. A Christian began sharing the gospel with him, and in time, Osama became, he came to Christ. He was seized and brutally tortured by the terror group that he once served. The night before his scheduled execution, Osama was told that he would be spared if he recanted his faith. He refused. His executioner was so impressed that he instructed Osama, we, we blindfold you, and when you hear the first shot, hit the ground and do not move. Pretend that you're a dead man. Osama followed his instructions. Minutes later, he opened his eyes and found the men in the firing squad dead and the execution leader gone. Osama is now safe in a secluded location. God is doing things, doing incredible things by the Spirit of God. We need to be reminded of what it says in Mark chapter 8. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. The ministry, pain, but proclamation and joy because God uses those who would be bold and minister in his name. And the last thing in the passage we see is maturity in Christ. Paul talks about maturity in Christ. The last couple of verses here, verses 28 and 29. <clears throat> the message is simply, him we proclaim. You see it there. Him we proclaim. Warning everyone, teaching everyone. And who is the him? He has already said in chapter 1, we heard the scripture reading, we heard who this him is. He's the one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what he's done. But also, who is he? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. All things created through him, for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. He's the head of the church, the, bo the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It means he be, might be number one, numero uno. He might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Through him, 
to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a message about him and what he has done. That's what it is. That's the message. And it's the message that, 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 uh, that, that Paul says, he, he warns and he teaches. He teaches the truth of it and he warns the consequences of those who won't follow that message. His goal is to, is to present us mature in Christ. That's, that's the goal of leadership, to present all mature in Jesus Christ. It's not merely conversion. It's discipleship. It's discipling, equipping people to become disciples, to make disciples, who will make disciples. Reminds us of Ephesians chapter 4 again, a parallel book really, where he talks about um, arriving at mature manhood, no longer children tossed to and fro, but growing up in every way unto him who is the head, Christ. Maturity, maturing in Christ. You know, I have two grandkids. One is six months old, Ariel. And then there's Aaliyah, who's almost two. She's 22 months old. And I'm kind of interesting watching the two of them, how, how different they are at different stages of life. Ariel, you know, she's right now, she's at a point where she sticks her finger in her mouth all the time and is drooling. You know, she's, she's almost, you know, she's starting to teeth. That's probably what's going on. I can't see any teeth yet. Um, she sometimes tries to put her whole fist in her mouth. I don't know what that's all about. Put the whole fist in her mouth. Why are you doing that? But she must like doing that. But she can't eat things right now. She doesn't have the teeth to do that. Her older sister, though, does that. She eats everything that, you know, you put in front of her. But someday, Aria will, because she will mature and she will develop. She will progress to the point where she can do what her older sister can do, because that's, that's the way it works. We develop, we mature, we grow. Ariel is not ready to go to school, but someday she will grow to that point, just as Aaliyah will. They progress from stage to stage, developmental stage. And spiritual maturity is just like that. As spiritual babes and infants, and then we move on into spiritual childhood, and then we mature as disciples. That's what Paul's talking about here, helping people to mature. And, 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 and one thing he wants us to understand, he says, warning and teaching is part of this, this process. For, in, in verse 29, it involves toil. It involves struggling. It's hard to help someone grow. Toil and struggle. The, 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 there you see the passion of Paul. One of the words there uh, is actually an athletic metaphor for hard, an athlete doing uh, training, hard work. But notice what it says. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He, it's not just my energy, it's his energy. There's an energy that, that's apart from me that's working through me, Paul says, as he, as he helps the churches grow. He, he's tapped into something that's beyond him. Ministry does that. You know, you can do ministry in your own, fit, own strength, or you can trust God and be, and be a, pen, a person who's dependent on the Spirit of God to work through you. That's the only way to be effective. This word for struggle, by the way, is used in chapter 4, verse 12, about Epaphras, who was their, their leader, that he struggled in prayer. So, again, Paul's in prison, and probably his struggling for them is just talking about his praying for them. Because he knows that just as he can do nothing without prayer, without the Spirit of God, they can do nothing without prayer, without the Spirit of God. In fact, in the first chapter, he began his letter after the, uh, the introduction, with a prayer for them. Look, he said, we thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for you. And then in verse 9 of chapter 1, from day, the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Prayer for them as he prays for himself because he knows that without prayer, we don't have the, 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 the strength and the power and the spirit of God energizing the work and service that we do. John chapter 15, Jesus talked about that. He says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. He says, you, you understand grace. You understand the gospel. You're already clean. I've spoken the word of grace to you. But he says, abide in me, and I in you. Stay with me. Hang in there with me. As the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When you clip off the branch from the root, eventually it dies. He says, you got to stay connected to me. That's what prayer is all about. That, that's what prayer is all about. It's staying connected to the source of strength, the source of life, the source of nourishment. That's why we have this concert of prayer we do in the night. We, 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 we want to be a dependent people who are trusting in him and not just serving out of our own strength and energy. That's why we pray. That's why we do this every couple months. We have this concert of prayer. Tonight we're going to focus on a couple of things. We're going to focus on the, just the, the health of our, of our body in general as well as the summer ministries, summer faith, as we heard, as we heard in the announcement earlier today, youth and children coming together. I'm going to pray for that. So if you have, you know, again, if you can be there tonight, that'd be great to, 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 to come together for that hour, hour and 15 minutes, hour, two, hour and a half, to just say, Lord, we need you. Lord, we want, to, we want to serve out of your grace and out of your spirit, not from our own flesh. Because apart from you, we know we can do nothing. The blessings of God are available for all who desire to be in Christ. It's not believing in religion or in the church. It's in Christ. It's in Christ. Him we proclaim. We proclaim him verbally, and we proclaim him in nonverbal way. That's what this table is all about that we're about to partake of. It's, it's a nonverbal demonstration of, of, of God's grace, the fact that we're dependent on his grace. And, and think about it. We come to the table, and as I stand here, I, there, there's been a lot of preparation that's gone on to, to make this happen each month. Someone has done some work to prepare this. We're going to have officers come forward in just a minute, and, and they're, going to, they're going to hand you the elements. And what do you do? You take and you eat. You, you are, the work's been done for you. <laughs> Others are doing the work, and you just receive it. You receive what's done. That's a picture of the gospel, you see. Faith is just taking and eating. That's all it is. This is a demonstration of the fact that, that it's not what we have done, but it's in Christ who has done the workforce. This table is the Lord's table, not my table, not the church's table. Christians throughout the centuries have, have celebrated this supper by God's grace. It's for those who understand what repentance is and what faith is. Repentance is, come, is understanding who we are before God and, and saying, Lord, I, I'm a sinner. I need you. And it's wanting to, 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 to live a life that's pleasing to him. It's receiving his forgiveness. It's knowing that you can't do that without the Spirit of God. So it's a dependent life. It's a broken life. It's a life that continues to walk with Him. It, it's, it's one who can examine themselves and, and knows that they're right with God or right with people. As the Spirit of God uh, convicts us, we want to be right with people. Paul says, let a man examine himself to be worthy of these elements. So I'm going to ask the officers to come forward, and then I'm going to ask us to, to, to take just a second to, to examine your hearts and pray. This, this, this supper is not just for 
members. It's for, it's for if those who know Christ and understand the gospel, for children who've been invited by the parents to the session. Um, but if you don't understand those things, let it pass by. Let it pass you by and pray and ask God to give you the faith and the strength to take and eat of Jesus Christ. Pray silently for a second. Well, this supper is a profound thing that Christians throughout the years have done. Yet it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful thing because it reminds us over and over again that we just receive. We receive what you have provided because there's nothing we can do. We rest, we Sabbath, we receive. And you pour into us what we need, your forgiveness and your grace. Father, well, I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would receive your grace and your goodness and your love in a special way this morning as we seek to, to be your people. Give you thanks in Jesus' name, Amen. The night that Jesus, he 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 took the bread and broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." And then he took the cup. So this cup is a new covenant shed for the remission of sins. Drink it in remembrance of me. Every time you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim my death. You announce it until I come again. Okay. Body of Christ. <laughs>